This episode is sponsored by Riverside, the easiest way to record studio-grade audio and video for your show, all virtually from your browser. So there's three things that you can control when you're a podcaster trying to create great interviews, which a lot of us do. Even though this is a narrative show, we do a lot of interviews to create those narratives. The first gets a lot of discussion, which is the questions you ask. The second deserves a little bit of a harder look from most of us, which is the prep, the research that informs those questions. And the third goes entirely overlooked, and that is the environment. Have you created an environment conducive to a great interview? Do you look your guest in the eye, even if it's remote, to build rapport? Do the tools simply work? Does it feel stress-free to be present in the tool? That's a big reason that I rely on Riverside for this show and all my client shows too. You can learn more and get started trying their tools for free at riverside.fm. Hey, it's Jay, and we all want to make work that matters, to feel motivated and inspired, to do work that resonates with others. They're not just aware of it, they love it. They respond to it. They take action. Whether we're building a business, advancing our careers, or leading a cause to change something, we are in the business of sparking action. But to do that type of elevated work, we need to get beyond how most of us learn about work, the simple tips and tricks, the cheats and hacks, the neatly packaged blueprints, the how-tos. Instead, we need to learn how to think, to change how we see the world, to elevate the work we do. So today, we're trying the start of a new mini-series, a recurring episode type that if these early efforts are well-received, if you tell us that you like these, we could do them for a while. The concept behind the miniseries is, well, the concept. That, that's what we're calling it. The concept. Scattered everywhere in this world, buried in books and the sciences and the minds of amazing thinkers, are all these named ideas and hidden heuristics and powerful frameworks, concepts that transform how we think and therefore open us up to new possibilities in what we can create and the impact we can have. These don't sound like the seven steps for growing your business or the ultimate guide to business growth. Instead, they sound like Goodhart's Law, the Golden Circles, or the Quest Matrix, the Recency and Primacy Effects, or how about Crab Mentality? These concepts help us see the world more clearly or differently in ways that show up all over the work we do. Simple-sounding ideas with profound effects. Before every episode, we'll reach into a mess of information, grab hold of the thing that's most worth knowing, and pull it out to bring with us to these episodes to present it to you and say this, this is what we should know to change how we think about the most important things affecting our work today. This is the concept. I'm Jay Akunzo. Today, the concept is TELIC. That's T-E-L-I-C, TELIC. And joining me throughout this series will be producer Alana Nevins, who's going to start us off to understand this concept of TELIC in a surprising place. So... I love hiking. I love the crunch of leaves. I love feeling the breeze. I love crossing a stream. How do you feel about hiking? So I grew up in suburban Connecticut, not a stranger to wandering through the woods, but it was usually en route somewhere. I was trying to like go to the quarry and I don't know, throw rocks down into the quarry and hear the echoes or something like that. And ever since leaving home, I've lived in a city. So 
I like to think of myself as the type of person who likes hiking, but actually, if you examine my actual behavior, it looks like that of a person who does not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So our different experiences are perfect examples of telic and paratelic. I'm enjoying myself. My goal is not to get to a mountaintop or to get back to the car or to really get anywhere. It's to be on the hike. Whereas your experience is telic. You're not really enjoying yourself while you're on it. You're, you're ready for it to be over. So telic means ending oriented. It's done to a definite end. Paratelic, it's opposite, means moment oriented. You're focused on enjoying the moment or actions or process right now. Another word for something that feels paratelic to you is intrinsic. It's intrinsically motivating for you to do it. So you're wandering in the woods, and maybe you're not wandering, although that phrase, a phrase comes to mind, not all who wander are lost, but you're Mm -hmm. going on a hike for the act of going on a hike that is intrinsically motivating to you. Whereas what might motivate me in this specific instance is to tell me we're going to hike to something. And I actually wrote about this. I've written about this concept before, which is why we wanted to lead off with this. I'm fascinated by it. And it's actually one of those things that once you see it or hear about it, you're going to see it show up all over the working world. That, you know, it's like when you buy a car, you see that car everywhere. That's actually another named concept. I think it's called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. Maybe a future episode of the concept. But I've written a lot about Telic, and I'm, I'm thinking of an article I wrote called Telic Work Terrorizes Us All. I distinctly remember <laughs> that, the headline because I was very proud of it. Telic Work Terrorizes Us All. And I think of it as when something is so ending-oriented that that's all you're focused on, it's like, I just want to grow the business. I just want to get this result. I just want this audience. I want this subscriber. When it's so ending-oriented, essentially what it becomes is a chore. The process there becomes a chore. And so think of it this way. Sweeping your floor versus eating ice cream. When you sweep your floor, are you trying to just enjoy a good sweep? Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) I would question what the heck you're doing with your life. Although after three years of a pandemic, I can totally see why stuck inside quite often you might be like, I love sweeping now. Fine. I get it because we're all a little like "Ah, right now. But (laughs) mostly you're probably not saying I'm enjoying a good sweep. What you want is a clean floor. You're ending oriented Sweeping is telic. Sweeping is a chore. This influences our behavior and how we approach the process to the end result. So for example, we avoid it. We'd rather not do it. So the floor gets dirtier. So what we're doing is counter to what we actually want. We're hurting our own cause. Or we outsource it, right? We're going to hire a cleaner or put it off on our partner or kids to do it. Or we're going to see, is there an upgraded uh, bit of technology I can purchase, right? Maybe that's the problem. Is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agonize over researching the best broom or modern sweeping equipment or better vacuum or I'm going to get a Roomba. I have, I have one of these at home because I have a dog who sheds all over the place. So rather than sweep, we just put a little automated robot vacuum on the floor and go about our day doing the things that are actually intrinsically motivating for us to do. So we essentially hurt our own causes when something feels like it's short. On the other end of the spectrum, for me anyway, is eating ice cream. Uh Thank God we're, we're recording this through our sponsor, Riverside, right now. You can only see, like, my chest up because if you saw <laughs> below my chest, you'd be like, Jay, maybe lean off the ice cream a bit. Man, uh, we'll chalk that up to the pandemic as well, but it's just the way I feel about ice cream. I seek it out a lot. It's intrinsically motivating. It is a paratelic activity. The 
object of eating ice cream is not to get a dirty bowl, right? You're not like turning to your friend or partner and being like, can you finish this for me? I really just want the dirty dish. No, the process is enjoyable and that's why we do it. And as a result, a funny thing happens to our behavior. We seek it out more. We find ways to make it better. I mean, we put tons of toppings and crazy toppings and different flavors. You know, we eat extra large toppings with extra large scoops of ice cream and extra large cones. Alana, don't even get me started on adults who order kitty sizes. Kitty sizes? <laughs> kitty sizes are for quitters. So you got me on my soapbox or my ice cream carton. See what I did there? Leave it in. I- We're leaving it in. Because it's so intrinsically motivating to do certain things in our lives that it actually influences our behavior in a very interesting way. We seek it out more and we find ways to improve it. And if what we want out of our work is results, well, what if we sought out that work more and found ways to improve it? In other words, we could somehow pull this mental jujitsu move and pin to the mat the part of our brains that just want the end result so desperately that we stop paying attention to the process. And the version of us that wins approaches the work feeling like it's paratelic and not telic. So do you have any examples, lest I continue to talk about ice cream and lose all of our listeners? I do. I have a few work-related ones, which maybe some people, other producers or audio editors out there can maybe relate to, which is or maybe they won't because it's my <laughs> it's my own individual experience, which is that I really enjoy cutting tape. So I really like just getting into Adobe Audition, my audio software, and just cutting out the ums and the likes and the little bits of static. It's so meditative and soothing and calming for me. And time just goes by really, really quickly versus social media posts. I really hate posting on social media. It's not something that brings me joy and I just want it to be over as soon as possible. But I'm sure that people, a lot of people have the opposite experience. I do. I have the opposite experience and I'm so, so glad that we found each other and started working together because the show not only has gotten way, way better, but my, my approach to the work, like I'm able to focus now on more of the things that do feel paratelic, that I'm intrinsically Mm -hmm. motivated to do because cutting tape felt like a chore. And so I think I was worse at it. I think I would start to zone out and, you know, I started to look for ways to do it. Can I avoid it? Well, that's going to hurt the product because really rearranging and removing things is such a, a crucial part of the edit. Like all these things in my search for a resonant story, I hurt my own cause because there was a massive and important part of the process that I just wanted to skip, right? Mm -hmm. It it became ending oriented. I wanted to get on the other side of it. You you hear writers talk about this. Writers will say, or or some writers will say, I like having written, not writing. And I'm like, I love writing. And I think, or I hope that makes me a better writer because I love Mm -hmm. to write. And also I love having written, sure, but maybe I'm a masochist, I don't know. I like the process. You know, and what, what that makes me think of is almost like playing this out to its extreme. If you create content or create anything to put out into the world to be received by others, the most extreme form of caring about the process would be your your practice, you know, having a personal practice. So my personal practice is I know every week on Wednesday morning, we ship an unthinkable episode. And every Friday morning, I ship an edition of my newsletter playing favorites. And so getting the practice, it's a routine thing that is for you, the creator, for your improvement, your exploration, your self-development. And as a bonus, if an audience is built around it, fantastic. 
But the moment the object becomes build the audience, you stop paying attention to the process. You stop thinking about taking risks or trying things that are destined to fail or getting through a lot of bad drafts en route to something good. It stops feeling like practice for you. The screws start to turn tighter, like everything has to work or you're not going to do it if, if you don't think it'll work. Right. So the practice is worse. So I think that's like playing out to an extreme for a creative person. The most intrinsically motivated we should feel for our work is around these pockets of time or projects, which we consider our practice. But I want to understand more about the sort of theory of, of it all. So, so removing ourselves from the practice, from the practicality for a moment, where do these ideas of telic versus paratelic come from? You know, what can we learn from the science and what can we even do with these concepts to improve? Well, I'm glad you asked about that because I've done a lot of research on it. <laughs> did that feel, um, by the way, did that feel telic or paratelic to do the research? It kind of moved between the two. Interesting setup for some of the research you're about to reveal, the movement mm -hmm. between the two states. All right, so so head into the research. What did you find? All right. So first of all, telic and paratelic were coined by psychiatrist Dr. Ken Smith in the mid-1970s. He created it to describe the dimensions or kind of the spectrum going from serious to playful. Mm. Then psychologist Dr. Michael Apter came in and made a fundamental change to this idea by suggesting we're not dealing with enduring traits. So you are not necessarily always a serious person or always a playful person, but these are passing states. Interesting. So just so I understand that part. So Dr. Ken Smith came up with the idea to describe serious versus playful. Later on, psychologist Dr. Michael Apter realized that, oh, these are not static states. And when you say that, Alana, are you clear about whether or not it's you or not a serious versus playful person or this action or process does not always feel one or the other to you? Like hiking as the example. It's like it can change. It's not always going to feel paratelic or telic. So is mm -hmm. the is the wavering between the two, does that happen on the individual level or does it happen on the action level? It's the action level. Okay. So the same action could feel one way or the other. You can move between the two. It's not like... Exactly. Okay. Interesting. Got it. So Dr. Apter was studying behaviors in students in class. So he was labeling them as either naughty or nervous. Okay. But what so happened... Santa, so Santa slash Dr. Michael Apter. Exactly. <laughs> and then once they got out of class, they were behaving really differently. So he was like, these are not actually personality traits. These are passing states. I think we kind of inherently understand that people act different in different situations. Right. And that's why like learning to the test is telic and learning becomes a chore versus, you know, that's why you don't actually maybe learn, right? The end result is hurt because I'm like, I was a straight A student myself. And I can't tell you how many classes I finished. And I'm like, I don't really remember most of that. But if you look at my test scores, they were great. It's like I didn't learn much, but I I, I got the good grades, right? Because it was like teach to the test versus teach kids. Like exactly. ed education and learning. Those two things are different. And mm -hmm. usually education feels like a telic thing, a chore. But learning is paratelic. It's intrinsically motivating when done right. Mm -hmm. So this switch of like kids acting in one way or us acting in one way, whether you're 
I'm going on a hike and I'm really enjoying it or it's getting like hot and I'm getting sweaty and I'm really thirsty and hungry and I maybe want some ice cream, getting into this telic state of mind. This switch between being in a paratelic state of mind or a telic state of mind is reversal theory, which is how Dr. Apter packaged it all together. So reversal theory. Okay, define that quickly for us. Okay, so reversal theory is how we switch between these two metamotivational states. So telic and paratelic being those two exactly. states. Yep. So just so I understand it, so telic and paratelic, so it's, it feels chore-like versus it's intrinsically motivating. These are frames of mind depending how on how people interpret their motives at a given time, right? So like the hiking example, it can tip to my motive is now to just get home because I've been out here too mm-hmm. long and it's, I'm starting to get hot and I realize I forgot my water bottle and I just want to get home. So mm-hmm. the, at first the motive was I want to enjoy this process. It's like I want to be writing. I want to be creating this show. I don't want to have written or have created it. But if a meeting is looming, I'm like, well, I got to run. So the motive is now to have cre- – I want to finish this. I want to wrap it mm-hmm. up. And so the motives can waver and that wavering – of your motives, either ending-oriented or moment-oriented, that wavering is called reversal theory. Exactly. Okay, so now that we sort of get the difference between telic and paratelic, and this idea that they're not fixed, it's not like writing is forever this way to you and hiking is forever that way, why should we even care in our efforts to create better and more resonant work? So we're going to kind of leave Telic aside for a little bit. Okay. And we're going to focus on Paratelic. More specifically, within Paratelic, we're going to focus on play and the kind of adult version of play, which is flow. Mm. So what's been your experience with flow? Oh, wow. I think of, I don't know how many people listening will have seen the movie Soul from Pixar, but there's a moment where the jazz pianist Joe in it, Joe is playing piano and he kind of disappears. He kind of floats off the seat Mm. into this like metaphysical, colorful, you know, notes and swirls of color kind of environment. He's in flow. The only thing that exists to him is playing the piano in that moment. That's how I feel. Like one of the reasons I write the way I write is I change locations. I actually sit in my kitchen, not in my office. I Mm -hmm. pour the same cup of coffee. You know, I make an Americano. I sit in the same chair. It's a stool at my kitchen island. And that's why I write my newsletter every week because those little motions of like where I sit, what I drink is, is almost like a golfer's waggle before the swing. It's like, I want this little tiny controllable motion that no matter how I feel that day, I can control it such that the next motion feels like that's all there is. I'm not distracted. I'm not stressed. I'm not tired. I'm not thinking about my kids. I'm not thinking about the stressors of being a parent, being a spouse, the pandemic, what other projects I'm working on, what meetings are coming up, nothing. That little tiny motion gets me into this moment where all that exists now is writing that newsletter. So that to me is flow. That's perfect. And we're going to want to return to that later on. Okay. Unscripted, by the way, that I just I want people to know that's not 
You're not like, we're going to return to that, Jay. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like there's a lot no. of this is not scripted. No, this is actually a perfect example of you're basically like using the concept already in your everyday life. Mm, okay. But I'll explain the science to you behind it. Yeah, let's later. get there. Cool. Okay, so back to flow and play. One researcher, Lenore Tur, a psychiatrist who studies childhood trauma, says, Unfortunately, people today devalue their play. We tend to play less and less the older we become. We are forgetting how to play and we are failing to realize how important play really is. Oh, that hits me where I live. Because as soon as I'm too self-serious, as soon as I'm like, I have to generate this result. And look, I'm very privileged. And so for a lot of people, it comes out of a very, very real need to see a result. And sometimes it comes out of fear because a boss or a culture at a company, even though nothing will happen if you don't hit your result by Christmas, because January rolls around, the numbers reset, and you're still there and everything's fine, right? Like there's some manufactured pressure. But when we feel pressure of any kind, real or fabricated, yeah, we lose sight of how to play. I feel like this becomes the way our society was built, the way adults go about their adulting. <laughs> do you feel that as a freelancer, Alana? Yes, I do. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think especially right now, I'm like hour by hour sometimes, and that right. really can impact the way that I'm able to focus on my work and really the whole reason why I am freelance, like why I have chosen to be able to to do work that does normally bring me joy. But the second that I start counting the hours, I'm, I pull myself out of it. It becomes less play or flow or just enjoyable. So that, you are now ready to hear something about our professional relationship that you were not ready to hear in the months we've worked to start our, our relationship, which is part of the reason I pay you a retainer and all the freelancers I work with retainers mm -hmm. instead of by hour is so that we can escape this telic behavior of tracking hours, trying to meet certain hour totals. I want people to know, okay, the dollar amount I want or need from this particular project or client is met guaranteed. And in fact, I'll pay on the first of the month, as you know, for the forthcoming work. I don't want this to be about you trying to jam in tons and tons of clients or tons and tons of work or hastily go through the process with me on this show to then trigger the outcome of getting paid what you're worth. I'd like to pay you what you're worth up front, have that not be a thing you think about at all anymore, and have you focus on the process and create meaningful work as a result. So having discovered this word telic, it's going to show up in lots of people's work in different ways. One very specific way, and it is just one of many that it shows up in my work, is it's changed how I pay and work with freelancers. I actually have a friend who is also a producer and started working with a company who pays them really large retainers. They understand how we have kind of a limited amount of creativity or a limited amount of like this ability to get into flow or to focus and as much space as we could create around that really valuable a bit of creativity and flow. If there's room to do that, then we might as well. So you bring up a good point. So I pay somebody hourly, right? So they have to track their hours. Creativity is not just using your calories. It's using your skills and your experience of the world. It's not something you just turn off at 5 p.m. So let's say you go for a hike at 5.30. And for the full hour that you're hiking, you're thinking about 
unthinkable and you're connecting dots that maybe at first don't start out being like, I'm thinking about unthinkable, but it leads you to a breakthrough, right? Because of where you were walking or what you thought about. It was a restaurant that you loved as a kid and you were just remembering that. And somehow that connects to this thing over here and that thing over there. And boom, now you're thinking about unthinkable. Okay. So do you charge me the full hour? Because that's actually how unthinkable gets better Mm -hmm. is not just you being like, I'm fielding the tape, I'm slicing the tape, right? It's you bringing forth the height of your powers to be present in the work, to be present in the process, to improve that process. So you having these intrinsically motivated moments where if you were charged per hour, I don't get your daydream time, right? We don't Mm -hmm. get, we have to have a conversation of whether or not you charge me for that. And it pollutes the process. So I think that's a very specific if ra- and maybe random example of how mm-hmm. this shows up in our work. But let's keep going. So we're talking about flow. We understand the problems of forgetting about play. What else can the science reveal to us that can affect our work? Anything? Yep. <laughs> Get Apolog- more excited. <laughs> Just really, <laughs> I'm honestly dreading how much I'm going to butcher this Hungarian-American psychologist's (laughs) name. All right. Well, I'll I'll let you off the hook a little bit. Okay. I just need to know where to put the accent. Do you know which syllable? One, two, three, four, five syllables? No idea. So, I mean, just go for it. I have Csikszentmihalyi. Csikszentmihalyi. Okay. How about Csikszentmihalyi? Okay. Great. Highly, yeah, see, we're butchering it. Uh, I apologize to this wonderful psychologist. Really, really sorry. But he's a brilliant psychologist who focused a lot on flow. And what Csikszent Mihai said is flow is a state in which people are so involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. The experience is so enjoyable that people will continue to do it even at great cost for the sheer sake of doing it. Huh. Oh my gosh, I love that. That's why I wanted to do the concept. It was not because just the, you know, the, just the named concepts alone, your brain goes, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. It maps to my experience of life. But then these definitions and ideas from the sciences that we're digging up, that one is just chef's kiss delicious, mm-hmm. right? It's like, that's why I'm late to so many meetings on days mm-hmm. where I have big blocks of writing time, even though it's like, hey, in three hours... You dummy, you have a meeting with Alana to talk about Unthinkable, but the first three hours are scheduled on my calendar as writing time. And I, so despite three full hours of writing, I arrive at the end and I'm still hammering away, hopefully, and I'm five, 10 minutes late or I ignore the alerts on my phone or, or whatever and you have to like call me. So I love that. I love that. Nothing else seems to matter. You're, the experience is so enjoyable that people will continue to do it even at great cost for the sheer sake of doing it. Wow. So there is some negativity to getting into flow. There is some issue of like, you know, you crave that feeling to the point where you're not paying attention to other important things in front of you, right? So there is some dark side. We've kind of painted Telic as the the enemy here, right? It's chore-like, it's ending-oriented. I think there's probably some good to thinking Mm -hmm. in terms of your goals, but, you know, and also paratelic, there's some bad in Mm -hmm. obsessing over and getting lost in the process of something because you might have other some things to get to. But as a creator, I can't help but love and kind of put up on a pedestal a little bit this notion of nothing else seems to matter when the experience of creating your work is so enjoyable. And man, don't we want more of those moments. Right. Because those thoughts give life more meaning. It can also help strengthen how we define who we are, how we experience life and the world and our work even. 
our work resonates more with us. We talk a lot about resonating with mm-hmm. others on this show. We did a great episode with the Savannah Bananas and the owner of the minor league baseball team, the Savannah Bananas. Incredible story. Go, go back a few episodes and find the episode Going Bananas if you haven't heard that yet. The owner, Jesse Cole, talked about the more fun we have, the more we win games. And it shows up elsewhere, too. The more they sell tickets, the more it shows up in the numbers, right? Mm-hmm. The more it feels paratelic for them to be a part of the team, the more the telic aims are served better. He was talking about how it strengthens how they define themselves as baseball players. Because I asked him, these people are working their tails off for decades of their lives trying to do something impossible, which is become a professional baseball player. And here they are in you know this minor league system, this minor league team looking at, I want to be a major league player. So they're, they're looking ahead. They're looking past you, the Savannah Bananas. You're a stepping stone. And also they're looking past the things you're asking them to do, like dance and entertain the fans and do all these crazy gimmicks and mill around with those fans, all these things. They're looking past that to just being like, I want to be a ball player. I want to go back to the field and play second base. And I asked them about that. And he said, well, what we find is when we get words of affirmation from others, it shows up when we go back to work. So when they these players do some of these gimmicky fan relationshipy things that don't seem like playing baseball, they play better baseball because it strengthens their sense of what it means to be a baseball player. It gives that it it is about their identity in a way because they feel like the work is more intrinsically motivated. It's not just I'm trying to get past this milestone to get to the next one and the next one and the next one. It, it's about the identity. And so much of our research on resonance and studying how resonance works is about the identity. It's the personal emotional reason that you care about something. So this maps to the stories that we're telling in a great way. My brain is starting to get that like good kind of, good kind of brain hurt. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 I did love the Savannah Bananas episode, but I'm yeah. not a baseball player or a baseball watcher. Do you have any other examples? Tell me you're not a baseball fan without telling me you're, you're not a baseball fan is to call it baseball watcher. <laughs> oh, is that what I just said? <laughs> I guess that I guess that actually is you literally telling me you're not a baseball fan <laughs> slash watcher. Anyways, yes, I totally hear you. We're not baseball players, most of us. Um, I've led teams of writers before. I think this might be easy for people to translate into whatever job they hold. But I've led teams of writers before on marketing teams. So inside the marketing team, it's a team of writers. And I'm their their team lead. And what I always tried to do was tell the writer what I thought was great about the writing, irrespective of the result. Mm. So what they would hear from others around them or executives was, hey, uh, Alana, great, great article, great, great ebook. Like we generated this dollar amount in revenue or this many sales leads because that's what that's what that person cared about. They, they basically mm-hmm. wanted the writer to be a button they pressed and out popped some content or more so mm-hmm. out popped some sales leads. And the writer wanted to be writers. They want to be writers. They want to write. They want to, that is their identity. So sooner mm-hmm. or later, they needed words of affirmation about that identity. And I would say to them, great piece, loved how you opened with a personal story. Because my hope is that they would go and seek it out more, right? They would, they would find like, oh, writing those stories, I am intrinsically motivated by it. And then they would do it again and again and again and never get any kind of affirmation that that mattered to anybody at the business, right? So I wanted to say like, yes, the things that seem to be intrinsically motivating to you, continue doing that because they'll seek Mm -hmm. it out more, they'll find ways to improve it, and then the stuff the the executive team wanted to see from them would be better served 
right? Better writing, better results. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that's where it shows up for me. All over this investigation about resonance, we've heard these little phrases and we've even done full episodes on the difference between being an expert and being an investigator. Mm-hmm. Like being an expert is like, I want to learn how to do that or I've already done that so that I can tell you here's what to do. Being an investigator is I'm on the journey. I'm on the path. The process is the point. I'm asking questions. I may not have answers. Come with me as we investigate. What does it mean to resonate? How can we resonate deeper with our work to grow our businesses and careers and leave our legacies, right? I don't actually have all the answers. But what I'm finding is the more I frame this work as an investigation, as the process being the point, the better my work gets. And the more the audience I'm trying to serve, in other words, you, the listener, seem really excited by it and come along and more of you come versus like, I am the world's foremost expert in resonance. Today's episode, we're answering this common question because look at me, I have the answers, which is not only telic, it's commodified people who hand out the how to's. It's everywhere. I'm not different. I'm not special. I'm not worth following. And I still think that about myself. I'm not worth following, but maybe the journey we're on is, and I just happen to be the one who started the journey. That's all. So expert versus investigator is another way I see this dichotomy between telic and paratelic. And related to that, a big part of getting into flow, which is, I think, directly related to this being an investigator, is the importance of being challenged. So when you're an investigator, you have to you're being challenged at every single turn. You don't know what's next. And our Hungarian American psychologist whose name I continue to butcher so (laughs) we know who we're talking about he says that we need to be doing an activity that challenges you enough to push you excites us helps us develop skills we need to voluntarily accept the challenge we want to solve and that is part of what makes it so enjoyable it's it's the quest the point is to to continue the quest some people are trying to be the best which is a false thing you can't actually measure anyway Instead of trying to be the best, just seek to continue the quest. I think that's a healthier way to look at this, right? It's There's one project. Mm -hmm. It's your body of work. So keep building your body of work. And the rest doesn't take care of itself, but becomes a lot easier. And if I haven't convinced you, Jay, or the listeners enough that like flow is something we want to be in and it's important, there's so much other research that has found the importance of flow. It can enhance human performance in every domain of human work and creativity. You shut down self-consciousness and negative mind wandering. For me, that's huge. Yeah. You focus on the task at hand. You're not thinking about, you know, related to the self-consciousness, perceived inadequacies, what's on your to-do list, how fast you could just get it over with. Yeah. And one of the things I found really surprising is... The average business person is in a flow state for only 5% of the workday. Whoa, are you serious? And if conditions were right, if we could kind of create environments for ourselves where we could be experiencing flow for 15%, research shows that our productivity could double. God, I mean, this is just, this could devolve quickly into me ranting against meetings and Slack and all of these you know, joining a million Discord groups, all these things that are constant, tiny little bombardments. It's like, go sit down at your desk and try to do work. I'll be off to the side hidden, but every so often I'm going to hit you in the face with a spitball blown through a straw <laughs> right to your cheek. Just fuck. Just, and then I'm going to hide. 
or a squirt yeah. gun right to your eye. Like, suddenly you're going to be like, what? What was that? What? And then when you return to the work, obviously you're not going to just snap back into the same state of mind and progress, right? Well, that's what meetings do, a lot of them. That's what phone calls do, a lot of them. Zoom calls, a lot of them. Switching between projects, even if those projects are back-to-back giant chunks of uninterrupted time. Switching costs are very real. I, I, I love that the research backs up my perception of this so much. So, man, 5% of the workday for most people, that sucks. But the hope is that with this research that we're going into with this concept, that there's maybe some more pockets that, that we could turn into being flow. So that brings me to sort of the biggest lingering question as we wrap this up, which is, we know what paratelic and telic mean. We've learned reversal theory that you can move between the two and do. And I actually think the way I just phrased that, that's revealing. You can move between the two. But do you control it? You don't fully control it, but there's some indirect ways you could control it. Okay. Some ways you could position yourself to switch. Right. Because ostensibly what we want is for more of our work to feel intrinsically motivating to do mm-hmm. so that we, we don't have too many telic moments and things feel more paratelic. So it would behoove us to say, I can control how that happens so that we do better work as a result, so that we, we pay attention to the process and improve the process, et cetera. So, all right, so you can't control that state, the way you kind of translate your own motives in your brain. But there are some things that happen before you feel that state that you can control. Can you just explain that? There are some ways that you could help your brain to be more likely to switch. Okay. So, so I think of it this, this way then. It's almost like you're going fishing and it's like there are better lures that you're hoping you get a bite. Yes. And in this case, you're hoping you get a bite like from your own brain, but yep. you're not able to like control the fish. That's a perfect example. Awesome. Okay. Completely on the spot, not scripted because I am in <laughs> flow right now. All that exists is me playing this piano called the microphone. Oh, <laughs> It's great. (laughs) Cut it out. Cut it. All right, let's continue. Um, Okay. So what are the lures? That's the question. Right. I'm trying to stay with your metaphor and trying to figure out if what I'm going to talk about are lures or like rapids in the river. Okay. Basically, there are three buckets of ways that you switch between the two states. That reversal theory comes into play. So I'm going to run us through all three of them. Okay. The first one is based on situations. So changing situations, changing events, circumstances, influence whether you're in a paratelic or telic state. Cool. So in this analogy, trying to get that little bite from your brain to start thinking or feeling motivated intrinsically instead of as a chore. Uh, If I want that paratelic state to latch onto my hook... What you're saying is move to a different part of the river. Exactly. Okay. And so what's a real world example in our work of that? If you're working on something and you are really, really ready for it to be over, you're in a telic state of being and you decide it's time for lunch, you go and sit outside, you're like, I just want to be here for a long time. (laughs) Are you saying I could go back to the writing and it might feel more intrinsically motivated instead of... Me trying to just finish the damn thing? Yep. Okay. The second one is frustration. One example that 
I saw a lot in all this research was doing a puzzle. So if you're working on a puzzle and you're like, I need to finish this puzzle and it's really frustrating and you're in a telic state, you don't quite give up, but you just accept that you're kind of frustrated and it almost switches off and you're like, you know, it's probably going to take me a really long time to finish this puzzle. I'm just going to focus on the puzzle. I'm just going to be here doing this puzzle. So this is going to be a very extreme, somewhat dark example to try and make sense of this, Alana. But are we sort of saying like, I could rebel against my situation or I could accept that the situation is not great and try to adapt to it? Like, for example, what the science says and research says about being a prisoner of war is like the people who tried to just think about the exit. So they're telic in their mentality. Uh, we're going to get saved tomorrow. We're going to escape in six weeks. This grand plan to, to escape our captors is going to work. They were less likely to actually um, do well and or even survive their mm-hmm. to, to survive the experience or do okay when they return to their home country than the folks that said, I don't know when this is terrible, but I have to learn to survive right now. So is that kind of what we're getting at yeah. here? Yeah, I think another example that probably all of us have been experiencing is just the ways that we've been moving through COVID. Like there's yeah. only so long we could be frustrated that we kind of accept it. And we, I'm three, I'm, we're three years in. I'm still frustrated today. So challenge accepted. I'll just burn it. <laughs> okay. No, but no, but <laughs> actually, though, my wife is great at adapting to this and I'm not. I'm the one who's mm-hmm. like my coffee meetings, my coffee writing, my events and speaking mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Like I'm still coming back around to those thoughts. And the less mm-hmm. I do that, the more I feel okay and mm-hmm. live in the moment and adapt. And my wife is great at doing that. And I can see mm-hmm. how she's doing better than I am in this pandemic. So I think you're right. And we talk a lot about constraints and people go, you got to think outside the box. And I actually go, no, 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 no. First of all, false, because you can't ever be outside any box because you're going to install your own constraints. If I said, Mm -hmm. write an article about literally anything you want, I'm already giving you some constraints, write an article. And then you're like, this is what an article is. This is what writing is. Where Mm -hmm. am I going to write it? Google Docs. When am I going to write it? I'll schedule it. What topic am I going to write about? Jay, when do you want it from me? We can't function. We can't move forward without some constraints. Mm -hmm. And so I think what some people do is they say, I... I can't stand the limitations and the resource constraints we have and they rebel against it and they do worse work. Or you can say, you know what? Yes, under other circumstances, I'd love to have more budget or more team or more time, but I don't. So what could I do to innovate within this box? And those are the people that create really interesting work because they use their constraints not as an excuse for getting off the hook, but they use those constraints as a way to inform the work. And actual research about how people make decisions and solve problems is backed up by this. There's tons of studies done showing that constraints can be a form of strengths if you're clear on them and you get agreement you know, across a group of, yes, these are our constraints. We might not all love it, but that we're accepting it. You end up doing better work. So I think maybe that... You know, we're frustrated by the constraints, but you can learn to sort of adapt and live with them and then innovate inside the box. And the work Mm -hmm. switches from telic to paratelic that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great example. Okay. Okay. So the third one is metamotivational satiation. Sure. So, sure. Naturally. Of course. Right. So, after a given time, the brain just kind of switches to something else. Okay. Interesting. It's almost like time passing. Is that really how you sum this up? Yep. So meta-motivational satiation. 
It's mm-hmm. yeah, I think of that as because I'm thinking about feeling satiated. It's almost like that's enough of that. Right. Yep. Your brain's like, that's enough of that. I think I see it also for myself as like if I've watched enough TV, I'm ready to work on something. Mm-hmm. If I'm cutting tape for long enough, I'm going to be done with cutting tape. I'm ready uh, okay, this for is it to be over. Yes. So even the things that feel intrinsically motivating, you might end up disliking after a while. It feels like a chore. And the things that feel like a chore, if you commit to doing them long enough, sweeping the floor, cleaning the house, doing the dishes, you might find ways to like them, right? Just by yeah. being at the thing for a while. Exactly. That makes total sense. Okay. So we don't really control all these things, but maybe we can be more aware of them. I think that just is, you know, you're aware of like what's happening to you and you can sort of try and shift and change, you know, and sort of jostle something in your brain so that when you go to the task at hand, it feels intrinsically motivating. Right. As we keep saying, we can't actually control these things, but there are these three buckets of ways that we're switching. The environments or surroundings that we're in, being frustrated and the passing of time that we switch. Or being satiated, like the past doing the thing for a long time. So we're probably not going to want to frustrate ourselves even more than we are already (laughs) frustrated. So we'll take that off the table. Time is something we cannot control as much as we would like to. That's also off. So the one thing we have left is our environment and our surroundings and our situations, which we also can't fully control, but to some degree we can. Going back to what Dr. Michael Apter said, the guy who gave us reversal theory, he said that we can condition ourselves to certain props or rituals that help us to induce a state associated with it. So associated with being an atelic state of mind or a paratelic state of mind, we could condition ourselves kind of like what you did with sitting down with your coffee, being in the kitchen you are creating the opportunity for yourself to be in a paratelic state of mind. To go back to fishing, your lure has some really, really tasty bait and the fish probably will like it. So I'm I'm thinking about there are these little actions you can take like, yeah, the routine before I write my newsletter, what I call the golfer's waggle, your waggle before you get into flow or before you shift, you know, hopefully to feeling a little bit more paratelic motivated by the process, sort of put a better, tastier lure on the on the hook for your brain to bite onto. Right. So understanding our motivational states is really important. We could use this understanding of telic and paratelic, this concept, this reversal theory to question what state we're in and what state would be most useful for the work that we're doing and how we're showing up to do it. Right. Because we all, we all want to achieve our goals. I don't want to minimize that. We want to see results and in some cases have to, whether it's the necessity of our lives or the nature of our work. We do want to achieve our goals and see results. But that, that desire can cause us to stop paying attention to the moment and to drift towards what other people promise will work. You know, a way to think about this is we look for what works without really understanding why it works. We're just looking mm-hmm. to skip the process, the enjoyment, the mindfulness, the care for craft to trigger some kind of end result through whatever means possible. We care about the end more than the means, but it's the means that yields those ends. They're inextricably linked. So although it might sound a bit counterintuitive, when we know about the concept of telic and its opposite paratelic, it helps us to remember. When we focus on the process, not the results, we just might get better results.
Thank you so much for listening to our first attempt at the concept. This episode was written and produced by Alana Nevins and edited by me, Jay Akonzo. As with anything we're trying out, we're trying it a little bit sooner than we feel comfortable because we want to involve people like you. So let me know what you thought about this. I'm Jay at unthinkablemedia.com or at Jay Akonzo on Twitter. I love hearing from you. And also know that we have a lot of changes coming to episodes like this. You know, I... Maybe this could be shorter. Maybe cut it in half somehow. Maybe we do chaptered segments with little jingles so you know what's coming. I don't know. There's a lot we want to try as we work and rework this idea of the concept. Part of me sharing my process is to show you that I'm not anywhere near a final product. I am an independent creator figuring this stuff out, trying to support myself with this business, with this idea of being an independent creator. So long way of saying I rely heavily on the support of listeners like you, not just your feedback and listenership, but actions you can take to support the show. You can head to my website and purchase a book or my course on podcasting. You could refer this show to a friend, or you could join my free newsletter, which comes out every single Friday to thousands of creative professionals, both in-house and independent, who care about creating more resonant work. All of that can be found at jayaconzo.com or check your show notes to learn more about what I'm up to. I'm back next week with a brand new episode of the show. Until then, keep making what matters. See ya. Special thanks to our sponsor today, Riverside. Riverside is the easiest way to record studio quality audio and video for your next show or episode without all the wonky cutouts and robo voices that you find in so many online tools. Let's use Zoom for what it's for, video conferencing. It doesn't create high fidelity audio or video for your show. Your audience deserves better, and so do you. And that's why I personally use Riverside's tools to create something that feels studio-grade but was recorded entirely virtually. Plus, you can clip the content and share it right to social feeds from their platform. It's simple enough to be used by thousands of independent creators and small business marketers and owners, but powerful enough to be used by organizations like TED and Marvel and shows like How I Built This from Guy Raz at NPR. So learn more about Riverside and stop using tools not meant for great show running. I beg you, please visit Riverside.fm to learn more.